Welcome to the Ecclesiastical History Society podcast. The EHS exists to explore all aspects and all periods of the history of Christianity. And in our podcasts, we welcome guests to discuss a wide range of topics. If you want to know more about the EHS, then visit our website, ecclesiasticalhistorysociety.com, or our social media pages. Thank you for joining us on this EHS podcast episode. I'm your host, Angela Platt. I am a PhD student at Royal Holloway, University of London, looking at love in religious families in the 18th and 19th centuries. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Jacob Phillips, the director of the Institute of Theology and Liberal Arts at St. Mary's University, Twickenham. Jacob joined St. Mary's as a lecturer in theology in 2016. For his PhD, which he completed at King's College London, he researched human subjectivity in the theology of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Jacob works across a diverse range of subdisciplinary areas, mostly within systematic and philosophical theology. He is particularly concerned with issues of human self-understanding, subjectivity, conscience, and obedience, with particular reference to the work of Eric Shivara, Joseph Ratzinger, John Henry Newman, and others. He's published three monographs. In 2016, with Bloomsbury, he published Translation, Benedict XVI and Peter Sewald, Last Testament, in his own words. In 2018, with Paulist Press, Mary, Star of Evangelization, Tilling the Soil and Sowing the Seed. And more recently, in 2019, with TNT Clark, Simplicity and Wisdom, Human Subjectivity in the Theology of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Today we're talking about a recent chapter called Service in Perfect Freedom, The Precious Gift of the Caroline Divines, and this chapter was published in a collected volume called The Anglican Patrimony in Catholic Communion, and it was published in July 2021. I'm so delighted to be here today with Dr. Jacob Phillips talking about his chapter, Service in Perfect Freedom, The Precious Gift of the Caroline Divines, which has just been published in the edited book, The Anglican Patrimony and Catholic Communion. So thanks so much for joining us, Jacob. It's a pleasure. Good to be here. Well, thank you. Thank you indeed. So let me jump right in. Uh, So you're talking about Caroline Divines uh, in around the 17th century. And I wonder if I can start with a contextual question. Can you tell our listeners a bit about the theological and cultural context of the 17th century? Yes, well, I mean, the 17th century really is is described by one of the um, the authors I drew on for the chapter as the high watermark of the English Renaissance. So, um, while historically it's um, you know very famous as a greatly tumultuous time with the gunpowder plot in 1605 and the first Stuart monarch and um, you know a huge amount of social unrest and things like that. Um, culturally, it was a time of great flowering. So Shakespeare died in 1616. Um, it's the time of Spencer and Marlowe in terms of poets. There's Milton, Pope, Dryden. In music, there's Renaissance polyphonies, a distinct. You know, genre of core music with Orlando Gibbon, Thomas Tallis, William Byrd, John Dowland. So 
there's this great moment of cultural flourishing, which really amounts to, I would suggest, the emergence of an explicit English cultural identity, um, which often in books about Englishness and English culture, they will often begin in the pre-modern time around this point. Um, but at the same time, there's uh, it, it's only uh, 41 years after the Elizabethan settlement and the 16th century begins. So... Anglican identities is emerging at the same time and it can't really be extricated from, from what's going on in the culture as well. So the King James Bible uh, you know, first comes out in 1611. The foundation stone of St. Paul's is laid in 1675. So there's um, this time of an Anglican identity, an English identity, but there's also just, you know, in terms of pure culture and scholarship, um, the Renaissance itself, which is the first time the Catholic tradition really has been mediated to England, not via Rome, or not via scholastic theologians. So there's a, a rediscovery of classical authors going on at the same time. And I guess a St Paul's Cathedral itself, if you think about it, in a way, it's a kind of point where all these come together in that it's a neoclassical building. It's, it's inextricable from the Renaissance. Uh, it's a very overt statement of Anglican and English identity. Um, and it's still controversial to this day because it's so, so classical in design. I mean, I remember the chaplain at my school was very disapproving of St Paul's Cathedral because he felt it, it had a, a form of architecture which was um, not native because it wasn't Gothic. Um, and it's not unusual to meet Italian or Polish or South American or African tourists who, who simply can't believe that St Paul's isn't, uh, isn't Catholic because it's such a great classical cathedral. So um, I think architecturally it serves as quite a good symbol for, the, for these different influences in terms of the Renaissance, uh, the Elizabethan settlement and this you know, very strong sense of an English identity emerging all at the same time uh, within those hundred years. And you talk as well in this chapter about a theological tension between Protestantism and Catholicism. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so there's, um, it's the point where you know, the Elizabethan settlement is really sort of becoming embedded. To, I mean, historically, there's still a huge amount of controversy going on. But in terms of theologians, um, it's still a, a, a decades-long process of making sense of uh, what the Anglican Church actually is. Um, and the Anglican Church is highly unique. Um, and I only really became aware of just how uh, obscure and unique it is, really, through... Um, you know, meeting people from elsewhere, um, outside the Anglosphere, so I'd include Americans within the broader, you know, the Anglosphere, as it were, but meeting particularly German people um, from a place with a, with a you know, a much more, uh, well, the, the home of the Protestant Reformation. And there's this um, ongoing tension and discussion and discovery within Anglicanism about the degree to which it is Reformed and stroke or Catholic. So people on what we would call the high church end would want to emphasize the the Catholic tenor of it in that it retains the Episcopal structure of the pre-Reformation church prior to Henry VIII um, and would consider Anglicanism to be in continuity with the church prior to the Reformation. It's not a church they would say that came into being under Henry VIII, probably partly because nobody would want Henry VIII to be the founder of their religion, to be fair. Um, but at the same time, you know, the texts from the German-speaking countries are being translated and published and passing from person to person uh, throughout England. And there are many who want uh, the Anglican Church to be much more overtly reformed than Catholic um, and find the enduring Catholic 
aesthetics of it quite troubling and would much rather see it veer towards um you know essentially a calvinist or even congregational form of christianity so it's the Anglican Church is completely unique and it's really being established at this point as people are trying to work out how on earth the church can be both Catholic and Reformed, which is a debate which is still ongoing in, in many different forms. Okay, so thinking about uh, that tension that you just spoke about, uh, the theological tension between um, Lutheranism and Calvinism and indeed the, the Catholic kind of post-Reformation theology, uh, in your chapter, you center this discussion on the Caroline Divines. And I wonder if I can start by asking you about the Caroline Divines. Can you tell our listeners about them and indeed why they were significant? Yes, yeah, so... Um... The word Caroline obviously comes from uh, Charles, so they were originally um, divines or theologians um, active under the reign of King Charles I. Um, You do get the odd um, writer who very fastidiously will only use the word Caroline to speak of those who published during Charles I um, and the reign of Charles II, but generally people now take Caroline very loosely to mean 17th century, so to include the reigns of James I and James II. Um, And divines is a slightly uh, antiquated word, perhaps, often just meaning theologian. Um, But it's interesting because uh, more traditional universities won't have degrees in theology, they'll have degrees in divinity, which is something we've sort of lost, this this nomenclature that that studying theology is to study the divine himself and I think that's a shame that we don't talk about divines and divinity anymore but in terms of who they actually are they are um, a group of writers theologians and a couple of poets who were active during the 17th century they're not really a school as such in that you can't um, very easily offer a a kind of taxonomy of um, particular theological positions it's more a kind of um, a shared tendency to navigate exactly that tension I was talking about between um, the Catholic and Reformed impulses of the Church of England and what makes the Caroline Divines um, distinct is that they were uh, fully accepted the Elizabethan settlement. There's no indication in any of the uh, well-known Caroline Divines that they were surreptitiously wanting to return to Rome or anything like that. Um, but at the same time, they tend to greatly emphasise what would be deemed the Catholic elements of Anglicanism. So they're very supportive of maintaining the Episcopal structure, the sacraments, the apostolic succession. Um, and they tend to argue very much in favour of uh, con- continuity between the pre-Reformation English Church, i.e. the part of the Church of Rome that was in England, and the post-Reformation church. So they don't consider it to be a church that came into being purely because of the writings of Luther and Calvin, and would often argue against the more Lutheran and Calvin uh, Calvinist impulses. Um, so they, they tend to, um, interestingly, also be not bound tightly by genre, and that could be a reflection of the time, and I think these things being much more loose and permeable, but... Interestingly, it includes poets like George Herbert and John Donne, um, who aren't doing systematic theological treaties. But the most well-known uh, of the divines, probably Lancelot Andrews, Jeremy Taylor, William Lord, John Cosin, Herbert Thorndike, and Mark Frank. But because it's quite a loose category, um, 
it's very hard to find an authoritative list. There's lots of disagreement about who should and shouldn't be considered a Caroline Divine. So next, can you tell us about the central argument of your chapter? Yes, well, I mean, the, um, the background to the book is to celebrate the anniversary of a magisterial document, so an, an authoritative um, document uh, coming from Rome, from the Vatican, uh, called Anglicanorum Cheatibus, uh, which was promulgated in 2009. And this document uh, outlined the mechanics for there to be um, a, a, a particular thing called an, an ordinariat, which is um, a branch, if you like, of the Catholic Church, which can maintain its own liturgical sensibility and doesn't have to have exactly the same uh, form of mass and daily prayer as the sort of mainstream Roman church, if you like, but is in full communion and all its members and priests are considered, you know, Catholic priests and um, members of the Catholic faithful. And it was promulgated particularly by Benedict XVI, um, partly, no doubt, because of his uh, enduring love of Newman and the influence of Newman on him. And Newman was, um, wrote a lot about the Caroline Divines, so his name will probably crop up a bit later on. Um, so the book itself uh, was intended to celebrate the 10-year anniversary of having the Anglican Ordinariat within the broader Catholic communion. But I think it's fair to say also from chatting to the editor, um, it wanted to highlight much good in the Ordinariat and much that it has to offer um, because it was very controversial, both on the Roman side, if you like, and definitely on the Anglican side. I mean, when the document was promulgated, and it was um, made public that, that great swathes of Anglican parishes could become Catholic. Um, some on the Catholic side were uh, had reservations um, because it seemed to them that um, this was breaking the kind of uniformity of you know what's called the Roman Catholic Church. Um, and on the Anglican side, there was there was much disquiet about um, you know a significant number of Anglicans suddenly becoming uh, moving into communion with Rome and breaking communion with Canterbury. So I think the editor wanted to sort of move on from the uh, difficulties that followed from the document and the way it was received, and reflect theologically on the different dimensions of of how that reception is going ten years after the event. So in your chapter, you also talk about the importance of aesthetic heritage um, via the Caroline Divines. I wonder if you can say a bit about that. So what I, what I wanted to do with this chapter was um, was touch on how um, there, there are, well, there's often references to the Caroline Divines as sort of precursors to the Ordinary Act or the sorts of Anglican theologians that Catholics would like or, uh, you know, people who were they around in the 21st century rather than the 17th would have supported the Ordinariat. Um, and I was invited to do a chapter just to explore what the Caroline Divines might mean for, um, for the Ordinariat and how we understand this thing called the Ordinariat. But I felt, I think I was a bit of an awkward um, member of the, the team on the book in that I felt it was a little bit um, I don't know, disingenuous to pretend that the Caroline Divines weren't critical of Rome because they're extremely critical of Rome. And, you know, William Lord's famous um, 
pattern of faith, which is echoed by uh, Lancelot Andrews, is that you know after the major councils of uh, Nicaea and Chalcedon, etc., um, in the early church, from that point on, it just began. It, it gets increasingly um, sort of defective, and eventually goes horribly wrong in the run up to the Reformation. So they do generally support that there was a very real need for reform prior to the Protestant Reformation, um, and would consider lots of Catholic doctrines from the high medieval era to be kind of erroneous um, and not genuinely authentic. And that's, I mean, that's a, a valid position within a framework of Anglicanism, but um, it doesn't really make sense in a framework of Catholic theology um, in which there's considered, it's considered that there's a continuous development of doctrine um, and that which is sort of approved or officially deemed authentic by Rome can't be undone really once it's happened. So I, I decided to approach the chapter by focusing very much on the mood or the sensibility or the tenor of the Caroline divines, which is why I think people, I think that's why that, that's what attracts people to them from the Catholic side. And it enables you to leave, to sidestep, if you like, the, um, the frequent uh, criticisms, you know, very polemical 17th century criticisms about Rome as Babylon and all that kind of stuff. Um, and it allows you to enter into them as an English Catholic in a way that doesn't involve trying to accept kind of theological convictions, which are quite tricky, I think, from a Catholic perspective. So I use this chapter as an opportunity to, to explain that approach, which was leaving dogma and doctrine to one side, because I think it's the tension is irresolvable, really. But then talking about this, these huge aesthetic resources in terms of the mood and the sensibility of the Caroline Divines and how much they can offer um, the ordinariate and contemporary Catholics. And they, they do continue to offer a great deal to contemporary Anglicans, of course. And to use a phrase from the document Anglican or Cheetibus, which talks about Anglicanism as a precious gift um, to be shared with the world. And, Insofar as the Catholic Church is understood to be the, the, the universal global church by Catholics, um, the idea is or was that by bringing Anglicans into communion with the Catholic Church that this gift could be shared more universally than it's been able to so far. And when you say you want to focus on the aesthetic resources rather than dogma and doctrine, uh, what specifically are you talking about? Is, is it communion, like you've just mentioned, or is there more to it as well? Yeah, it's more, it's about... Um, tropes, um, particularly um, uh, recurring themes and patterns of Caroline spirituality, um, which one can sort of lift and transpose and, and be informed by without necessarily um, adhering to, to statements about dogma and stuff, which become quite tricky. So I wanted to, I suppose, to read the Caroline Divines as, as literature, and many of them are literary figures, George Herbert, John Donne, the obvious examples. Um, they're poets first and theologians second. And I felt that that's where the real resources uh, were in terms of themes and tropes, really, rather than theological positions. And what were some of the tropes and themes of Caroline's spirituality that you discovered? Well, um, <clears throat> they're, they're quite well known, so I can't, I can't take full credit for sort of discovering them. But I, I gathered them together, um, the ones that I felt were most uh, <clears throat> excuse me, apt really. Um, so moderation is is very key. It's often key in Anglican, different variants of Anglican spiritualities. Um, 
and by moderation in terms of theology that comes from the understanding of the Anglican Church as a via media which is ultimately rooted in Hooker, Richard Hooker from the 16th century. But the idea of the via media, which means middle way, is that Anglicanism is distinct as a reformed Catholic church because it treads a middle way or a balanced path between two opposite extremes. One is Calvinism in Zurich and the other counter-reformation Catholicism in Rome. And the Carolines were one of the first to present the idea that the English church is, is uh, distinctly moderate in a way that the hot-headed polemics between um, Southern and Northern Europe weren't deemed to be moderate. And this was interesting because it, it connects very obviously with this emerging English identity and the idea that the English are themselves somehow a moderate people. And I realise this all probably sounds a bit twee and unsustainable to our ears today, but it was, you know, it was there at the time and continues well into the 19th century. Um, the idea that to be English is not to be given to extreme and impulsive, rash emotions and to maintain what Mark Langham calls a measured tranquility, an idea of sort of godliness, um, which is not just ecclesiological or theological, but goes right down into um, personal conduct. And the idea that you know the holy person is the one who maintains uh, emotional balance in the face of different extremes and doesn't get hot-headed and carried off into anything fanatical, that kind of thing. So there was moderation, and the second one was reticence or discretion. And this is a very big difference to Rome, uh, which endures to this day, really, and is, and is there in Anglicanism to this day to an extent. Um, insofar as much in Anglican doctrinal statements and liturgical practice is often left unsaid quite deliberately. So if you look at a, an Anglican rubrics, um, a liturgical book, there often aren't explicit instructions about how the celebrant of the Eucharist, for example, should, um, should uh, hold him or herself and what he or she should do at certain points. Um, but if you look at a, a Roman um, rubrics of the Mass, every single element of bodily movement is described in great detail as to what the priest can do. Um, and what that means is that an Anglican Eucharistic service can vary wildly um, according to the different inclinations of, of the congregation and, and the celebrant. Um, uh, and that should is thought not to be the case, or thought that it should not be the case um, in a Catholic church. Whether or not it actually works is, is another matter. Um, but it's also got a great theological richness, this idea that, that reticence is godly in some way, discretion, um, holding your tongue in connection with mystical traditions around silence, um, and uh, it's very interesting in terms of the way the Caroline divines interpreted the Eucharist because um, they saw two extremes there was the extreme of Calvin which is it's a pure you know memorial supper which is only important for those who share that faith and then Rome had full-blown transubstantiation whereby you know in every conceivable sense um, the body and the blood the host um, is transformed you know, very really and undeniably into the body of Christ. And the Caroline divines would, would simply not get into those definitions as far as possible. They consider transubstantiation, they treat it as if it's probably true, but it's almost indecent to talk about it in this kind of detail because it's such a glorious mystery 
let's try let's not concern ourselves with how it actually works and how it can make sense in terms of science and metaphysics and just be silent in the presence of Christ. So reticence and discretion is it's very obviously English in terms of this um, this older understanding of Englishness and English culture, but at the same time has a great theological and spiritual richness, which is very present in the Caroline Divines. So I know you're mainly focusing upon Anglicanism with the Caroline Divines, but just as you were speaking about moderation, and indeed you're talking about how it's um, more generally related to English identity, I just wondered if some of the tropes and themes of Caroline's spirituality that you've discovered, if you're aware whether they were imbibed by other denominations or groups as well, or if this is a very specifically um, Carolinian or Caroline way of looking at things. Yeah, I'm not really sure. I mean, I, I know in talking about silence and stuff, um, obviously Quakerism um, becomes uh, is, is the obvious thing to talk about. And I'm not sure what crossover there might be in terms of um, early Quakerism and Caroline spirituality. I mean, the thing about reticence and um, discretion is it's so rooted in the Christian tradition around silence, which um, goes back at least to the Bible, if not according to some of the Fourth century Egypt and the emergence of monasticism. Um, it would be difficult, I think, to say whether the Carolines, without doing some you know, careful analysis of what texts were read by whom and all that kind of stuff. Um, but also the, the rich kind of emotional um, affectivity of it, I can see how that could have fed into Methodism to a degree, I think. Um, but I must say, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have any authoritative knowledge on that. But I can see there are avenues that would be worth exploring, I think. My, my next question, um, just regarding the comments that you were making, um, I was wondering, uh, with regard to the, the Caroline focus on the aesthetic, and as you were talking about this um, acknowledgement or acceptance of mystery without wanting to prod or question it, how was, was there any tension with that idea and kind of the growing um, enlightenment themes that were arising? I mean, did Caroline respond at all to that? Or, or indeed, was this part of a response to growing enlightenment themes that wanted to disregard mystery and, and deconstruct it, as it were? I think it definitely went in that direction. Um, at what point that begins, I don't know, but it is definitely um, clearly um, uh, an attractive option for, for those that are, are watching what we now call the enlightenment begin to emerge and seeing <clears throat> the medieval cosmology sort of begin to fragment and disintegrate really in the pre-modern era. Um, the Anglican approach to these things, or the Caroline approach, I should say, is very attractive and very seductive. Um, and so far as one can sidestep uh, the very real tensions between you know, science and faith. So I think it definitely went in that direction. Whether that begins in the 17th century or happens afterwards, um, it'd be difficult to say. I mean, I think um, certainly in the early 17th century, I mean, one of the things that really struck me in the reading I did for this was just how enchanted the cosmos still is, because we often associate the pre-modern era with the point at which um, the enchanted cosmos becomes disenchanted, which is, it is true. But the Caroline Divines definitely have a slight retrograde or, uh, well, perhaps even reactionary sort of tenor in that they they really do hold to a, an almost medieval view of, of cosmic ordering. It's informed by the Renaissance, but it, um, it's, it's an incredibly um, kind of holistic 
cosmic vision of the faith in which um, the classically post-enlightenment forms of Christianity which leave the physical world and the cosmos to one side and focus entirely on, on faith as something intellectual because they've, in a sense, they've had to sunder um, the material world to science. It can no longer be explained by faith. They're a million miles away from that, interestingly, and there's no indication of them moving in that direction at all. They seem to want to preserve the mystery um, of the medieval era. So thinking beyond the 17th century Anglicans, what are the implications of this research, or indeed your chapter, for post-17th century? Uh, so even perhaps moving into the 20th and 21st century? Well, I think um, it's it, it was interesting to discover how much the people's knowledge and awareness of the Caroline Divines has been mediated through a 19th century High Church Anglican movement, i.e., the Oxford movement. <clears throat> the Caroline Divines were very obscure in the early 19th century, and it was Newman and Pusey and Keeble in Oxford from the 1830s onwards who sort of rediscovered them and made them um, well known again and saw them as precursors to their own um, variant of High Church Anglicanism and, and what eventually became, came to be called the Anglo Catholic tradition. Um, and I think it's we're going through a period in which people are trying to get away from the way the Oxford movement read the Caroline Divines and, and stop seeing them merely as a precursor to the Oxford movement. So I think that's, um, I think it's important that, that people continue with that. And I think um, it's also becoming increasingly important that, or in my, my own work, is increasingly interested in how um, culture and faith interact and People often um, will uh, write and write about and study the Oxford movements in such a way that it's like they're sort of existing in a vacuum and they're not um, they're not influenced by the discussions going on in the cultural, literary, artistic sphere, um, particularly about Englishness, because the question of what the Anglican Church is is always bound up with the question of what Englishness is. Um, so my own work on Newman. Um, is, is looking at this question of what, what Newman understood Englishness to be. But then more generally, I mean, there are, um, I only know this from social media, so I'm not speaking as a scholar now, but I know from Anglican friends, there's lots of discussion in the Anglican church at the moment, which is really, seems to me from the outside to be uh, a replaying in a very 21st century form, of all these old debates between being Catholic and Reformed, particularly centering on the role of the parish. So there's been some, you know, some documents and, um, articles written in the Church Times, the Anglican newspaper, um, about the era of the parish being dead, i.e. a specific geographical location um, for which has a, which has a parish church uh, with a, a parish priest who is responsible for the people who live in that area and thinking of much more kind of um, trendy, digital, uh, inventive forms of being Christian. And the latter would be considered kind of low church um, and the parish model would be considered high church. So I think um, I would recommend those who are concerned by those debates and want to uh, defend the role of the parish, if you, if you like, I would commend them to read the Caroline Divines and see the, the rationale that they have for maintaining uh, continuous structures which endure over time and not um, being avoiding throwing out the baby with the bathwater, if you like, um, by being too sort of congregational. 
And you've already alluded to this a few times, but can you talk a bit about the sources that you used for this chapter? Yeah, so um, in terms of primary sources, um, the important ones were Lancelot Andrew's sermons, which are in, it's a multi-volume set, which I was able to get access to the originals from uh, the volume of 1629, um, which was just fantastic. I just really, uh, almost, I mean, it means to me like Elizabethan English, uh, brilliant Shakespearean language, incredibly long sermons. Apparently Elizabeth I herself was very critical of long sermons, but she was long dead then, so people were doing really long sermons again. Um, George Herbert, of course, and his collected poems are available in numerous volumes. Um, and Herbert Thorndike, his theological works were published in the 17th century as, as one volume, um, and that was really helpful. But then in terms of secondary sources, I found an interesting monograph by um, a, a Catholic theologian called Mark Langham, who I was aware of, um, who had done a monograph on the Caroline Divines as a gift for Rome. It predates the Ordinariat. I found it a little bit too placatory. He seemed to be um, trying too hard to be ecumenical and avoiding the, the issues I talked about earlier, that there are you know, clear differences between the two traditions. Um, but I found a really excellent book from 1990 or 91 called The Panther and the Hind by a theologian I'm very familiar with called Aidan Nichols, who's a Dominican theologian. And that was a really interesting study of Anglicanism um, by a Catholic theologian, you know, very complimentary and almost almost prophetic in that he said, you know, he concludes having written this great big study of Anglicanism from Henry VIII right up to the 1980s, that it's, uh, there's so much there, you know, one day there has to be a way in which um, Anglicanism can be incorporated into Catholicism again, because there's such a richness there. And when I read the way in which he described that, it was almost prophetic in terms of what Rome decided to do in 2009. And what have you found most interesting or surprising through the course of your research? Uh, I think the thing that sort of really got me going was this um, this cosmology, this Renaissance cosmology, which I was alluding to with the question about the Enlightenment. Um, this is a really um, pre-modern cosmic vision, even though it's early modern. Um, and I'd done work before on cosmology and how, when cosmology changes, how that affects faith. So I was quite alert to this, but it's really clear that this is, although this is the early modern period, this is a pre-modern cosmos which is not disenchanted. Um, and I just, I found it really interesting, these ideas which uh, crop up in Shakespeare and Pope and others, that the planetary alignments and the ordering of the stars and the constellations um, are a form of custom or office which is mirrored uh, and in almost directly linked to human society and structures of um, legal governance and ecclesiastical governance as well. So um, there's this this um, this wonderful passage from Troilus and Cressida, um, a speech by Ulysses, which uh, I quote in the chapter, in which it talks about office and custom in a line of order. Um, and connects the reliability and stability of the planetary movements to the holding of offices in human social organisations. Um, and I, I think we've completely lost that today. Inevitably, after the Enlightenment, it's very hard to, um, to have this integrated, enchanted view of the cosmic reality in which human life is, is 
interweaved at every level with things which are going on in the cosmos, ultimately, with heaven crowning everything, with God at the top. Um, and although it's, it's very pre-modern, it's also, it is distinctly early modern insofar as it seemed to be influenced by um, some quite odd ways of thinking, um, by which I mean the rediscovery of things like Kabbalah, the Jewish um, mystical tradition, which was going on in the Renaissance much of which was kept, um, not talked about openly and publicly, for fear of being deemed a cult or esoteric. Um, but this was also a high watermark of hermeticism and Marsilio de Pacino and all this kind of stuff was going on. And um, I, just didn't, I just didn't know that 17th century Anglicanism was so sort of radical, magical, um, creative uh, and inspiring. And I certainly didn't know that um, uh, you can read a play by Shakespeare and, and have a you know a very distinct vision of the way the cosmos works and that there's actually a cosmology in Shakespeare which is quite distinct. Um, so reading about that just I just found absolutely fascinating and, and hope to revisit again at some point. So my final question for you, Jacob, what's next for you or or is there any research project you're currently or anticipating working on? Yeah, I have um, a book I've been working on since forever, but I will finish this year, um, which is very directly related to this, which is on um, John Henry Newman and the English sensibility, um, which takes a similar method to what I sort of tried out from this chapter, and it takes certain tropes of the English identity or sensibility that were emerging in the early 19th century, so quite a bit later, um, the discretion pops up there again, and moderation um, as one of these tropes, along with um, ideas around empiricism and practicality and things like that. And I see how they influenced um, Newman's theology in the book. And what I'm trying to do is um, tackle a long-standing issue in theology of culture about um, how the Christian faith can be genuinely and truly universal and bearing on all human beings, which it must be um, by definition. Um, and at the same time, look and feel uh, appear and smell completely different according to its own cultural settings. Um, so I thought I'm using human and Englishness as a test case for this very old question of theology of culture in the book. Um, and I'm not quite sure where I'll land with that yet, but I do want to finish it this year. Um, and then other than that, I've got a couple of small things on the go related to theology of culture. So I'm, um, I also work on Joseph Ratzinger, who became Pope Benedict XVI. Um, I've got, uh, there's a big Ratzinger conference going on in September in the States. I'm doing a paper for that, which will result in an edited volume, um, looking at German understandings of culture and how they connect and can be compared to Newman's own understanding of culture uh, or theology of culture. And I've also got a strange kind of side project that's been going on and off for a few years um, with a, an African theology network. Uh, which is a completely different universe in many ways, but uses these same ideas around theology of culture to talk about um, contemporary African theologies where there are um, long-running debates and tensions between how um, uh, what, what could be called clumsily um, indigenous spiritualities can and should affect um, Christian belief or not, or to what degree African Catholicism can or should look European. There's huge tensions in that area. Um, and I've been doing a bit of work with a, 
a contemporary Catholic cleric with his writing, uh, Chapel Cardinal Robert Sara, um, to contribute to that network, mostly African theologians. So that's um, a completely new area, which I just find really exciting. We might have to have you come back again when you finish that Newman monograph, because that sounds really interesting as well. I'll have to do another episode. Yeah, sure. Um, I'd love to. Brilliant. OK, I'll keep that in mind. Um, before I let you go, then. So finally, would you mind reminding our listeners of the title of the edited volume in which your chapter can be found and where they might procure a copy for themselves? Yes. So um, the title is Anglican Patrimony in Catholic Communion. And it's published by Bloomsbury um, and it's available in all good bookstores, most places, I believe. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Ecclesiastical History Society podcast. Stay tuned for our next podcast episode, which will be advertised on our social media pages. If you're not currently a member of EHS, we highly recommend you consider doing so. It's a great opportunity to network with other like-minded historians and keep abreast of latest research in the field. More information is on our website, ecclesiasticalhistorysociety.com.